0: Many American cities are facing a rise in violent crime, but the impact goes far beyond those directly involved. Entire communities are being robbed of opportunity and of hope. We discuss what could be done and is being done in and around communities around Georgia. This is The Breakthrough Podcast. Well, welcome to The Breakthrough Podcast. Uh, This week we're joined by Josh Crawford, director of the Criminal Justice Center here at the Georgia Center for Opportunity. Josh, thanks for coming on board. You've been at GCO for about a year now, but what types of things, like why criminal justice? Why is that something that you think is important that that needs to be addressed in kind of inner space?
1: Well, first, Corey, thanks for having me. And for me, it's really sort of a hierarchy of needs question, right? Um, if you don't find yourself in a safe environment, um, then it's very difficult to be successful in so many of the other areas of life that um, we care about at GCO or that that people care about generally. But there's sort of this presumption of safety in the Western world and in the United States, especially. And in the majority of communities, it's a fair presumption. Uh, but there are neighborhoods and communities all across this country where where that presumption doesn't exist and they suffer for it
0: like we talk a lot about safety and the things that that they suffer from what what specifically like when we talk about you know we deal a lot with the impacts that that policy and many of these things have on poverty explain because i think a lot of people don't think about safety as a direct impact on poverty how does it directly kind of impact somebody's well-being or the opportunities that they have in their community
1: well yeah first and foremost when we're talking about safety we're talking about both direct victimization, right? The the actual uh, chance of being a victim. And then the fear that comes from living in a community that is unstable or, or lacks public order uh, or in which uh, you have the potential to be a victim, right? Because that fear changes behavior. People stay inside when the sun goes down. Kids don't play outside. And there are sort of a lot of second and third order consequences of those behavior changes. But people sort of get the, the poverty violence relationship backwards, right? There's this assumption that um, in poor neighborhoods, uh, because you don't have uh, essentials, perhaps, then it leads you to a, a life of crime. And one of the things that we know from the, the literature is that, especially for violent crime, poverty is a really poor predictor of participation in violent crime. The overwhelming people who grow up in poverty uh, will never pick up a gun and use it in in the commission of a violent offense, for example. And in fact, there are far more poor communities in the United States than there are high crime communities in the United States. But when a poor community becomes a high crime community, it's almost as if it solidifies that poverty, right? Um, And that's because private sector job growth falls off a cliff, Um, businesses and individuals who can leave do. Um, and what we found in the literature is that there's very little you can do through other policy avenues, be it things like um, tax incentive uh, structures or education reforms or things like that to really get a neighborhood like that back on the right track unless you address that safety question first.
0: I think, I think that there is, like you said, there's an assumption that if you're poor, you're in a, in a high crime community. Um, And that Mm -hmm. not understanding that, um, you know, like I think the idea is that if you're poor, then you're going to make poor choices kind of a thing. Right. As opposed Mm -hmm. to being able to say that there are things that we can we have done that have that have made poor communities less or less safe, therefore reducing their ability to get out of that specific situation. I think that's an interesting uh, thing that I think an association that a lot of people don't make. Uh, around
2: this it's issue. really um, it's a it's a false correlation and I think Josh probably sees this happening a lot and kind of addressing the elephant in the room is that a, a lot of people, whether they like to admit it or not consciously or subconsciously assume that poor people are inherent people in poverty are inherently more violent um, that it's some sort of like character flaw or characteristic. That they have, and obviously we know that's not true, but there is this again this false correlation because there's so many other elements that press on that violent crime component that are not factored in. People really narrow in on that poverty equation, and so Josh, I'm interested to know because you you did just highlight, you know, there are there are poor communities, so poor communities are poor communities and violent communities are violent communities. And sometimes those intersect, but almost always people tend to make that correlation when they do intersect, even if it's not always accurate. Can you tell us more about that?
1: Yeah, they, they overlap with a pretty high rate of frequency, right? They Mm -hmm. co-occur at a pretty high rate. Uh, There are not in the Western world, at least particularly violent, affluent neighborhoods. Right. Mm -hmm. And so what people do is they see that most high crime communities are poor and then they draw um, sort of a causal link between the two. They tend to draw that causal link, again, sort of backwards. And the the problem with that, again, is that it misunderstands really who the perpetrators of most violence are. Uh, Violence concentrates among a remarkably small number of people in a remarkably small number of places. And by places, I don't mean the city of Detroit. I don't even mean a neighborhood within the city of Detroit, I mean micro locations, one block street segments, um, uh, a housing project, um, an abandoned building, uh, a bar that is frequented by gang members and things like that. And so in every neighborhood in the country, even neighborhoods with a high rate of violence, it's a very small percentage of the population that is perpetrating most of that violence. And frankly, it's a relatively small percentage of the population that is directly victimized by that violence. Typically, um, although there are a lot of people who are sort of caught in the crossfire of that violence. And so the real sort of impact of that violence is the way that it indirectly affects the neighborhood around it. So it's not necessarily that you yourself are going to be victimized or that you're going to lose a family member to a homicide. But again, if you don't feel safe walking out your door once the sun goes down then there's a lot of consequences and and what happens is that a small number of people a small number of very violent people typically within the subcontext of street gangs begin to become the dominant culture in a neighborhood despite the fact that they are a minority of individuals and it's because they sort of rule with fear right and so what would what would theoretically be the dominant culture in the neighborhood which is a hardworking, sort of pursuing the American dream type culture, finds itself retreating indoors. And it's it's why it's so important to restore order in some of these neighborhoods so that those hardworking people who just want a better life for their kids than they had can, can pursue that.
0: And really, that's a lot of like kind of what you've been talking about is uh, how do we bring safety to these communities as opposed to, and, and kind of get out of that mindset again that crime is simply just a response to being poor. Poor people are going to do crime mm-hmm. because that's that's how they respond to the situation, which is very dehumanizing in a lot of ways. This is like, okay, these people have, have had opportunity robbed from them, so what are things that we can do to bring safety to them so that they can flourish within the environment that they're in? Um, so just recently, we came out with the Atlanta crime brief, as we're calling it uh, internally. But uh, tell us, Josh, a little bit about what was the vision behind that? What was your thought about, like, we need to um, put out something? Uh, and we're doing this in other cities as well. But like, come, what is the vision behind the crime briefs?
1: Violence in cities isn't new, right? For basically as long as as we've had cities. We've had violence in cities. Um, And I don't mean that just in the American context. I mean that like in the civilization context. Um, Human nature is sort of unchanged in this regard. Uh, What has changed is sort of the structures and institutions to contain what is a capacity for good and a capacity for evil. Right. And so... um, what that means is that we, we know what works to reduce this kind of crime. There have been, especially over the last several decades in the United States, experiments that have gone on in cities all over the country and we know things that work and we know things that don't work. And so really, this is not a, a public policy area that needs a dramatic amount of innovation in the sense that we, we're not really sure how to address these questions and that we need to uh, strive to, to make them better somehow. What it really needs is evaluations of that public safety infrastructure as it exists, and then recommendations for how to get to what we know works. And so that's what we've done in Atlanta. It's obviously Georgia's largest city. It is a a city that gets sort of a disproportionate amount of national attention because of the contributions that it's made to, to national culture and especially the culture of the South. And so... What we did was we looked at, at these things in Atlanta, compared them to best practice and then sort of begin to make recommendations for how you get to from where you are to best practice. And what we know is that that revolves around policing and sentencing, the built environment of the city, how you treat and interact with crime victims and what uh, how you treat sort of juvenile offenders when they enter the system and how you uh, help uh, former inmates transition back into civil society once they come out. And so, it's not meant to sort of be an exhaustive list of everything that touches violence, right? It's it's designed to look at what we know is best practice, compare that to best practice, and especially within the context of official systems, right? This isn't about promoting or discounting an after-school program, for example, but it's about what do your actual institutions of government look like as it relates to this question?
0: Um, who like who is that for? Like, who do you, who are you hoping you can engage with on this to kind of, uh, drive, drive change forward, if you will, in Atlanta?
1: Yeah. The, the primary audience is is policymakers, um, the media folks with influence and what we do, which is somewhat unique is we look at both the city's infrastructure and the state's infrastructure on these questions. Um, Public safety is primarily a a state and local function. The federal government plays some role, but it's a minor role compared to those two. And when people think about public safety, they think about cities because they think about police departments, they think about anti-violence programs at the city level. All of that stuff matters, but your state is who determines what is criminal and what is not, how certain things are punished and how they're not Um, the state because of the operation of the Department of Corrections, Department of Juvenile Justice is who determines um, how those things function. And so we sort of look at both and and try to attack both simultaneously to say, here's what your your state infrastructure needs to look like, here's what your city infrastructure needs to look like. And if you do all of these things, then we would expect um, substantial declines in, in violence among that subgroup that I've talked about.
2: So Josh, you've done a really good job of outlining um, kind of what the, what the report covers and, and some of your expertise, bringing that into these larger cities. Can you high level give us maybe two or three of the main recommendations or main actions that cities can take in order to really target and and kind of hit this violent crime community at the root of the problem?
1: Yeah. So I mentioned earlier that crime concentrates among a small number of people in a small number of places. And so I'll just give you three policy areas that we look at that reflect that reality and that changes can attack that reality and make a substantial difference. The first is in policing. Um, In the 1990s in Boston, Massachusetts, there was developed a strategy that's referred to as focused deterrent strategies or group violence intervention strategies, depending on whose stuff you're reading, but it's all essentially the same. And what those strategies do is they target both law enforcement and social service resources on the individuals and groups that are driving violence. And they treat these gangs, these street groups as a, as an entity, as a group. Because the group dynamics play into the occurrence of violence. Corey, if I were to disrespect you, um, you know, just sort of face to face, you may be inclined to let it go because of the social pressures on you to not engage with me violently and so on and so forth. By contrast, if... um, you have three or four of your gang members with you even if you are inclined to, to perhaps let that go the group dynamic is such that you're now incentivized to show out in front of your fellow gang members and and not let that disrespect stand the other thing is that gang culture is sort of one of the last vestiges of true honor culture in the united states violence is considered a legitimate response to, to disrespect and so What it does is it recognizes that reality. It recognizes that violent crime within the subcontext of street gangs is not just individuals who exist within a gang, but that the gang contributes to that violence. And so it focuses law enforcement and resources on those individuals. It says, look, we know who you are. We know what you're doing. And going forward, we have a single ask. And it's that the shooting stops. It's not that you stop selling drugs. Although if you run into traditional law enforcement, they're going to bust you on that. It's not that you become productive members of society it's just that the the extreme violence stops and so if you can do that then we are largely going to leave you alone but if you don't if you continue to 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 pop off rounds if you continue to engage in that level of violence then we're going to rain absolute hellfire down on the entire group and so now the dynamic switches because the it is far easier to violate somebody's probation or parole than it is to bring a new charge. And so when you look at these these gangs, these street groups, you've got a pretty high percentage of folks on probation or parole. So now if, if Corey, you, Kelsey, and I are gang members and you and I, Corey, are on probation or parole and Kelsey is not, well, now you and I have a reason to prevent Kelsey from engaging in serious violence because even though she's the primary perpetrator, you and I are going to feel those consequences more quickly and more severely than she does. And so it sort of flips that dynamic on its head and says, look, we are we are now going to, um, you know, treat the group as a group. As long as you don't commit serious violence, we're not going to bother you in an extensive way. But if you do, we will make good on the promise to 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 make life very difficult for the entire group. There are sort of corresponding social services that are offered. If you don't have an an ID, like a driver's license, uh, if you want job training. If the reason that you're selling dope on the street is you're paying your mom's rent, there's resources where we can get your mom's rent paid. Like those those kinds of sort of, again, lower on the pyramid hierarchy of needs things. We will provide those if it's what is keeping you on the street. And so um, that's sort of the one of the policing strategies that we recommend. They've been tried all over the country since Boston in the 1990s, and they reduce violence by 40, 50, 60% in the jurisdictions that uh, adopt them and, and, and do them well. The wow. second is in the sentencing space. Um, we know that, uh, broadly speaking, longer sentences uh, tend to reduce crime. They tend to reduce crime through a variety of factors, aging out, incapacitation deterrence, so on and so forth. But there are consequences to longer prison sentences, right? The, the more time you keep more people out of a community, there are both literal financial costs to the state to do so, and there are costs to communities to incarcerate people like that. And so what you do is you develop your sentencing structures so that it more severely punishes the specific kind of conduct that you care about. And one of the ways that states have done this is, is through what's referred to as gang enhancements. And so what they do is they more severely punish behavior that is committed in furtherance of a gang objective. And so uh, two scenarios. Uh, you're a gang banger. And you abuse your girlfriend. Right. You're still going to be prosecuted for that, but you're not abusing your girlfriend in furtherance of a gang objective. It's going to be sort of the standard process. But if you participate in a drive by shooting of a rival gang or you shoot somebody as a part of a turf war, then those things are going to be punished more severely um, because it's in furtherance of a gang objective. And then the final thing is the physical environment. We know that one block street segments with things like abandoned buildings, overgrown vacant lots, inadequate street lighting have much more or much higher rates of of crime and violence than do corresponding blocks without those things. And so we can, via mapping, overlay maps of those things and crime maps and say, hey, here are your problem areas, here are your problem properties, tear down this abandoned building, structurally shore up this abandoned building, clean and green this vacant lot, put additional street lighting here. And so you can do things through the built environment of a city that requires no law enforcement whatsoever, no sort of official criminal justice institution, but can can dramatically reduce violence in an area uh, pretty quickly.
0: What I think is fascinating about kind of what you've put together, Josh, is that um, it really is a, a holistic solution. And looking at, because um, we talk a lot about collaboration. We talk a lot about like how it takes a community to kind of, Address a lot of the issues that face different communities, right? And what you're talking about is not just, "Hey, let's fix the police that's going on." Let's, but the, you know, there's all these multiple facets and different roles that people can play in their community. How do you see, um, how do you see this working with with Atlanta or in any cities that we go f- forward with? Where how do you get everybody to come to the table and have a discussion about this of addressing this problem?
1: Yeah, I think in most places. Now, this is certainly not universally the case, and there are some West Coast cities that are doing their darnest to, to prove me right that this is not universally the case. But for the <laughs> most part, individuals of both, both political parties, um, elected officials, community advocates, and so forth, generally have the same goal in mind as it relates to public safety. They want safer streets, they want less violence, And so when that's your starting point, then it becomes easier to kind of bring everybody to the table. And then when you're frank and upfront with everyone and say like, look, this is what we're looking at. This is how we look at these issues. This is how we think about these questions. This is what we're recommending. Then it allows everybody to say, I'm for that or I'm not for that, right? And part of what I think makes our work a little bit more successful and a little bit more appealing than some of the other work is, one, it recognizes the seriousness of the problem. And so we don't sort of have the consequences that some advocacy groups have of trying to downplay violence for for sort of political reasons. But at the same time, the solutions cast a relatively narrow net on the actual problem actors, right? There are ways to address this violence uh, with sort of a meat cleaver or a, a broad net that will, in fact reduce the violence, right? It will get things back under control and it will, at least in the short and medium term, make a community safer, but that there are second and third order consequences too, right? Like zero tolerance policing works for a while. Um, Sort of getting tough via sentencing will work, but there there are consequences to removing, for example, large swaths of parent age men from a community, right? The, there's a, a, a pretty robust set of literature on that. And so you can do things in a way that are kind of ham-handed and it will work, but it creates some some other consequences. And people have kind of become wise to some of those consequences in the last several decades. And so by saying, look, this isn't about over-policing your neighborhood because there are far too many communities that that fall into this category, right? They're high poverty, high violence communities that have simultaneously been over-policed and underprotected for much of their history. And we're trying to do the opposite, right? We're trying to adequately protect, but not over-police these neighborhoods. And that's what law enforcement wants. That's what most elected officials at most level of government want. Um, and it's it's what the community wants. And so it becomes a little bit easier to bring people together, I think, than if we took one of those sort of two more extreme approaches to these these issues.
2: So Josh, a lot of the focus in what people are doing to address crime right now are reactive in nature by necessity, right? It is it is addressing the problem that already exists, which is critical in ensuring that it doesn't continue. However, I'm interested to know just really briefly, are there any tried and true proven methods that are more preventative in nature so rather than addressing the people that are already committing crime is are there any measures being taken to reduce the number of people moving into those lifestyles
1: yeah so there's not a lot that is that has really strong evidence in terms of true prevention in the sense that somebody never engages in criminal behavior in part because the pool of kids, for example, that qualify as high risk is much bigger than the pool of kids who will ultimately engage in serious violence. And so there are a lot of really effective programs at dealing with at-risk kids, but it doesn't necessarily translate into reductions in violence because most of your kids who are at risk are still never going, like even if you did nothing, right, you never engage with them at all, are still not going to be serious violent offenders. Some of the stuff that works really well, and we talk about this in the brief though, is for the kids who are not just at risk, but have begun to take affirmative steps into offending They're sort of gang recruits or low level gang members. You know, they're selling drugs on the street, they're carrying an illegal gun, but they're not yet doing things like carjackings, drive by shootings, homicides, the sort of more serious stuff. There are a lot of programs around the use of cognitive behavioral therapy for that population that substantially reduces, uh, future uh, violence among that population in part because, we know that this is a group that has begun to avail itself to this lifestyle. And so the measurement of that group is a little bit different than the at-risk population at large. And so that's one of the things that, that we talk about in the brief and, and really kind of advocate for, because the benefits of those kids not offending later on are, are pretty dramatic.
0: I think that's mm-hmm. interesting because there's a lot of discussion about like, uh, kind of what you said, this idea that like, well, let just expand services and that will prevent people from getting in there. The, usually the people that are taking advantage of those expanded services are not likely to have offended in the first place, right? So like identifying people early in the process of starting down a path and redirecting them early in that path is way more impactful in terms of, again, restoring safety to a community.
1: You go into a school, for example, and you say, look, this is a a school with a large population of its kids that check a lot of boxes for risk factors, right? And you say, hey, we've got this program, it's gonna get you job training, it's gonna guarantee you a job on graduation, all these kinds of things. Virtually every kid who raises their hand and says, I'm gonna do that thing, is probably not somebody who is going to avail themselves to the street right. in the first place right and so that's kind of the problem because a lot of those programs have really positive outcomes and have really positive outcomes on the on the crime sense very few of those kids go on to be serious offenders but what we don't know because of that self selection bias question is would any of those kids have been violent offenders in the first place and the the studies that have tried to parse that out generally find that the answer is no yeah. But the earlier that we can get to a kid, once they've begun to take some of those affirmative steps in a street life, there are some things, again, like cognitive behavioral therapy that can be really beneficial to keeping those kids from engaging in more serious violence.
0: Yeah. Okay. I have to ask the elephant in the room because this is the big thing I think that has been kind of discussed over the last few years, which is this idea that we see a lot of police violence uh, and you see a lot of kind of... I would say is over, overaction action by police. And so there's been a push to defund the police and your report though, talks about like, what are the, what are the consequences? The unforeseen concept? Well, I mean, I, they should have been foreseen, but like, what are the unknown consequences to this idea of defunding? Where does that balance lie in your mind of kind of this over policing element and this like, well, let's just get rid of the police because they started, they created a problem that we are not happy with and we shouldn't have in our society.
1: Yeah, as is so often the case in sort of public discourse, right? We created this false dichotomy, right? You're either for funding the police or you're for police violence, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and what we find in the polling uh, as it relates to questions of defund the police that uh, African American and Hispanic um, urban poor residents, right? Uh, tend to have some of the most negative views of defunding the police of any subgroup. In fact, the most positive views of defunding the police uh, primarily come from wealthy white suburbanites um, who don't really have to deal with the (laughs) consequences of of defunding the police, right?
2: Uh, That checks Um,
1: out. Right. And so, um, but that doesn't mean that members of certain communities don't wish that certain things were done differently that they don't wish that that uh, certain strategies were, were in place or not in place or so on and so forth, right? And so for the focus deterrence example, uh, there was an evaluation done by a professor that basically looked at the impact of this on police community relations, the impact of those kinds of strategies on police community relations. And they are not primarily um, designed to be things that improve community police relations. They're a violence reduction strategy. They're not about sort of bridging that gap. But what they found was that they dramatically improved police community relations, and they did so for two reasons. One, nobody wants the problem actors out of a neighborhood more than the, the average citizen of that neighborhood, right? They know who those people are. They want them out. They want them incapacitated. They don't want their cousin who was selling, you know, relatively inexpensive things that fell off the back of a truck to end up in prison for a long time but they want the trigger puller in prison for a long time right and so these strategies are effective at doing that and they narrow the scope of attention to the the real problem actors the other thing that the community members really liked was that there's this sort of like procedural justice aspect of the strategy right everybody's called in everybody's given a second chance like right off the bat everybody is said you get your act together, we'll leave you alone. But if you don't, then this is what the consequences are. And so a lot of people said, we like that you gave them the second chance, and we like that you made good on the promise when they chose not to take advantage of the second chance. And so, again, there are strategies that we advocate for in the brief uh, that that really can go a long way to doing that. And the other thing that we talk about in the policing area is the role that homicide detectives play and the role that homicide detective caseloads play in clearing cases and getting convictions and all that kind of stuff. One of the most important factors though, in clearance rates for homicide detectives are police community relations. Mm -hmm. And you have sort of a chicken and the egg problem, right? Because if you're not clearing a whole lot of cases, then people aren't going to be particularly inclined to talk with you because the perpetrator is going to stay in the community. And therefore there's a, not a whole lot of reason to communicate with law enforcement if you know that the person that you're about to snitch on is going to stay in the neighborhood uh, and you're going to have to deal with the consequences of that, right? But as <clears throat> clearance rates improve, people start to say, hey, this matters." we're telling law enforcement these things. They're taking the guy out, all that kind of stuff, right? And so police community relations matter to clearance rates, but clearance rates matter to police community relations.
0: That trust element is fascinating, right? Like we don't think about it, but yeah, like, I mean, if you knew that they were looking out for you and they were actually doing what you asked them to do and you were seeing it play out, right? Like you have a family member that is murdered, right? And you see that the, the, the police are taking it seriously and are doing everything within their power to, to get that person brought to justice, you restore a lot of trust and faith within the community. I, yeah, I think that's, that's a fascinating thing that we don't think about uh, when we talk about clearance rates.
1: You restore a lot of trust and faith, you get better participation, yeah. and you also get less self-help justice. A remarkable percentage of the violence that we see is retaliatory in nature. And one of the stronger predictors of that retaliatory violence is sort of confidence in the official system, right? right? Do you think that the police are going to apprehend, prosecute, convict, and incarcerate the person who killed your family member? Or do you think they're going to be on the street in two years and so you want to take it into your own hands or your cousin's going to take it into their own hands or some fellow gang members are going to take it into their own hands? And so it's not a panacea, but sort of trust in the official system does decrease impulses towards self-help justice.
2: So, Josh, thank you so much for joining us today. It has been incredibly enlightening. Where can people go if they want to learn more about what you do and some of the reports that you've created and some of the studies that really inform the approaches that you take to these communities?
1: Yeah, so the the place with all of it is, is foropportunity.org, F-O-R-opportunity.org. At the at the top of the page, there are a number of, of single word um, buttons. You can click work, education, family, safety. Safety is is where you'll find most of my work, most of the work in this space. And then if folks want to interact with me on social media, I don't have the stomach for Twitter or X or whatever it is. <laughs> and so you can find me on Instagram. It's it's just crawford 502
2: Thank you all for joining us here on Breakthrough. While we break through the noise, break down some of the barriers and break down some of the issues that are informing and affecting our communities We really look forward to seeing you guys on the next podcast. And until then, thanks so much for joining us.